Good morning. Today we will be the 21st chapter of Revelation, and I will be reading the entire chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God be glorified by the preaching of his word. Let us pray today as we come to this glorious passage of God's Word. Father God, as always, we come to Your Word recognizing our need of Your presence with us and Your help for us to be able to understand it. So we pray that You would illuminate the meaning of Your Word to us this morning and that You would continue to use Your Word powerfully in our lives to instill hope and confidence in You and in Your promises and in the inheritance that is laid up for us in eternity in the presence of your glory. And so, Father, as you communicate these things to us, as you reveal the meaning of these things to us, as you give us confidence and assurance in these things, would you continue to use these truths, Father, to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, that we might not store up our treasures here in this world, but that we might recognize the surpassing value of all that you have laid up for us in eternity. So glorify yourself, Father, through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a pretty beautiful picture, is it not, that's described here in Revelation chapter 21, especially there at the end of the chapter. And as we picture it in our minds, we are mindful of the reality that, again, in this book, God speaks in in visual ways that are symbolic and significant of the realities of who He is and who we are and what He has done for us through Christ Jesus. And so, think with me through this passage of Scripture as we come today, because what it is describing is not a physical city. What it is describing by way of these visual images is not some giant box some giant cube that's going to come down out of the sky, which is how it's portrayed and what we picture in our minds. But what it's describing is what it says here, even in verse 2, the bride of Christ adorned for her husband. And we know that that is a reference to the people of God, to the church of God. And so that's what's being described here in very, very beautiful and powerful and profound terms. You remember that a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 19, we saw the beautiful picture that God's Word paints for us of this great and ultimate hope that we have as His people, that we are His bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 19, He revealed that great and ultimate hope of the wedding feast of the Lamb that He has prepared for His people to enjoy with Him for all of eternity. Our God wants us to know, even as we live in this world, that His love for us is so pure and so deep and so profound that the only adequate picture of it that we have reference to in our world here and in the lives that we live in this world here, the only adequate picture of the, of the love of God is not just a picture of the kind of love that a, that a gentle master has for his servants 
or even that good friends have for one another, or even that a parent has for a child. The Bible uses all of those kinds of relationships at various times to to picture our relationship to God, but the ultimate picture that God paints, and His favorite picture to paint in order to highlight and underscore His great love and faithfulness and commitment to His people, is the picture of a groom taking and preparing and marrying for himself a bride who is beautiful to him. In the Psalms, it's portrayed, Psalm 45 paints a wonderful picture of God. In the first half of Psalm 45, God pictures himself as a groom coming to take his bride to the wedding and to marry her and to live with her in faithfulness and love forever. It says that he's handsome in the beauty of his holiness. It says that he's blessed and strong and powerful. It says that he uses his strength to fight for his bride, fending off any enemies or fending off all other suitors. He's victorious for her. He's faithful to her. He's righteous. He's royal. He's a king. He's sovereign. He's eternal. And so will his love for his bride be strong and powerful and faithful and eternal, everlasting. And then in the second half of that psalm, Psalm 45, the focus shifts from God as the groom to to focus on the bride, the people of God, as she waits and prepares for him to come and to take her and to marry her. And he's given her great gifts and he's dressed her with beautiful garments and he's decked her out in beautiful, glorious, royal robes and with fine jewelry so that she is radiant in the beauty that befits this marriage that's going to take place. And it says that the king desires her beauty, the very beauty that he's invested her with. And then it describes the great joy and the gladness that she has when he comes for her and ushers her into the palace of the king and marries her and lives in eternal blessedness with her. That's Psalm 45, and it is a beautiful picture of the gospel and of what God does for us. Even though we're not beautiful in ourselves, He makes us beautiful. And He decks us out in resplendent, glorious holiness and robes us with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to bring us into His presence forever and live in a a, a faithful relationship of covenant unity and oneness with us that is like unto marriage. And that will be a permanent relationship in eternal glory. What What a rich picture of the gospel God paints for us and the relationship of His love towards us that He paints for us by by way of the imagery of marriage. Jesus speaks in the same way in the Gospels. He, He talks about His people as His bride and refers to this coming wedding feast that then we saw portrayed in Revelation 19. And Jesus talks that way on a number of different occasions in the Gospels. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the imagery of marriage, doesn't he, to picture our relationship to God. He goes so far as to say that the reality of earthly marriage, when it's done God's way, between one man and one woman, both humbly and lovingly assuming their God-given roles in marriage, 
and mutually loving and serving one another the way that God has ordained. He says that a God-ordained and God-defined and God-centered godly marriage is God's own picture here on earth of His love for His people. And he says that the union between a man and his bride is like unto the union between Christ and His church. So see, that's from, from Old Testament to New. This is one of God's favorite pictures of His love and commitment and relationship to His people. The, the picture of a bride and her loving, committed, covenant relationship with her husband. And so the picture of a bride preparing for the wedding during her betrothal is the picture that we saw in Revelation chapter 19. That that big grand wedding feast, that eternal blessed union between God and His people that will be our reality for eternity. And that's the picture that we're shown again here in chapter 21. I know when you read chapter 21, you're you're, you're tempted to picture a city because it's describing a city and, and you're tempted to picture the dimensions and the shape of this physical object, but that's not what God is actually describing. He's describing the bride. He's describing the church. He's describing the people of God by way of this rich and vivid imagery. And so a a great portion of the book of Revelation we need to understand is focused not just on what's going on in heaven, where God dwells, but what's going on here, on this earth, in this world, as we wait for our Lord to return and usher us unto that great wedding feast of the Lamb. And we're taught throughout the book of Revelation that while we wait in this world, Satan is raging against God. Satan is raging against the church, the bride of Christ. We learn that there are demonic powers, satanic authorities that are inciting wars and plagues and immorality and death in this world. We learn that Satan is allying himself with the kings and the governments and the nations of this world and and, and leveraging every kind of political and military and economic and cultural power and influence that there is in this world to try to destroy the church, the bride of Christ, to try to seduce the church away from God. See, isn't that the imagery we saw in chapter 17 and 18 several weeks ago? The world is Babylon, pictured as a great harlot trying to seduce people away from God. The book of Revelation shows that through all of that, God fights for His bride. God sovereignly judges her enemies and gives the church the ability, in spite of the persecutions and temptations of this world, to clothe herself in the pure white linens of her wedding gown, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. We've seen already in chapter 19. So, in the midst of all the evil in the world, through every dark trial in the world, the book of Revelation is proclaiming that the sovereign God is at work to prepare His bride and to destroy and to judge all of His enemies and to remove every obstacle and and every impediment to the pure and holy and righteous wedding between Him and His bride. 
And that's what now, as we come into chapter 21, that's what we see. We see the wedding. You can hear the wedding march playing right here comes the bride. That's what chapter 21 is. The whole book of Revelation, it turns out, is, is all about this faithful love between God and His people, between the King of all kings and His chosen bride. And here now, all the final preparations have been made and the stage has been set and the wedding is on. And the first thing that we see is God setting the stage for the wedding. Think about an earthly wedding. Think about an earthly bride and, and her groom. And one of the biggest things that they have to decide is where is this wedding going to take place? Where would you want to get married? The one time, the, the most special day of your life, where would you want that venue to be? And what we see here in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation is that the venue for the wedding between God and His people wasn't worthy of the wedding between God and His people. It was a filthy, disgusting, vile place. It was a mess. And it wasn't just dirty. It was corrupt at the core. It didn't just need a fresh coat of paint It needed to be remade. It's as if the only place where the wedding could be held was an old church, but it had become dilapidated and filthy and sleazy like a run-down, disgusting brothel. That's how he's picturing this world, see? He created it good and beautiful, a garden temple for him to dwell with his people, but it has become infested with immorality and darkness of every kind. The world was originally designed by God and declared by Him to be good. It was fabulous. It was glorious. It was unspoiled by sin when He first made it or or decay of any kind when He first made it. It It was a perfect garden temple until the fall of man and the entrance of sin and then the profusion of every kind of idolatry and immorality and corruption so that now this world that God once declared to be good Now, it's pictured as Babylon. It's pictured as a harlot. It's pictured as a brothel of corruption and of decay of every kind, moral and physical. And see, what, what would any good, godly groom do, right? A king who had at his disposal all the wealth of the kingdom... What would he do if he was getting ready to be married and the one place where he was going to marry his bride was this old, run-down, decaying, festering, nasty den of iniquity, a disgusting brothel? What would he do? Well, he wouldn't just clean it up and repaint it. I think he would tear it down and rebuild it. And that's exactly what is pictured here. That's exactly what is proclaimed throughout the Scriptures. That is exactly what God is going to do. This world that He created is this glorious garden temple which has become a haunt for every unclean thing, demons, unclean spirits, immorality, idolatry, infested with sin and death and decay, identified as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. God says this is not a place that is fit for the wedding of my bride. And so he's going to literally burn it to the ground 
and rebuild. Make it new. The burning down part is described in in earlier parts of the book of Revelation. It's the sixth seal, it's the seventh trumpet, it's the final two bowls. We're familiar also with what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he says, the heavens and the earth that now exist, right? This earth, this planet, and all the stars and galaxies in the heavens above, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. And then he describes the coming final fiery judgment of God on this world like this. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief unexpectedly and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The universe above us, stars, galaxies, will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth that we live on and the works that are done on it will be exposed to this incineration of God's judgment. It's also what we saw last time at the end of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation when the final judgment comes with the return of Jesus and the dead are raised and brought before the holy judgment seat of God, it says that from the presence of the holy God, the earth and the skies will Flee away. No place will be found for them. What's being described there is the destruction, the, the, the dissolution, the disintegration of this entire created order. The whole universe, heavens above, the earth, which have been subjected to corruption and decay and death because of sin. Beautiful as this place still is, right? And it is. Look out there. It's glorious still. But... This world is no place for the wedding of Jesus and his bride because it's impure. It's not perfect anymore. And it's unclean. And it's subject to decay. And it's crumbling and it can't last forever. And so God burns it down. He dissolves it. He disintegrates it all. The first, this world that he made, he made out of nothing. There weren't any particles out there. There weren't any atoms or molecules out there. Until, until he declared them and spoke them into existence and then ordered them into the universe that we live in. What he's going to do in the future is to disintegrate it all again so that all the original particles, all the original atoms and molecules and quarks and all that other stuff gets, gets pulled apart again and then reformed into something new. That's exactly what's being described. Verse 1 of chapter 21 here, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, dead. And Peter said, right, in 2 Peter 3, that according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here it is. Right here in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. A new heaven and a new earth. And, and know about this word new. We're not talking about a remodel of the current heavens and the current earth. This isn't a refurbishment. This isn't, this isn't tear it down to the studs and put some new siding on it and new paint. This isn't a kind of renewal that happens with some serious scrubbing and elbow grease. That's not what this word means, new. 
There is a word in Greek for that kind of renewal where over time something that already exists and already has a form is, is changed and improved and renewed and restored to its previous state. But that's not the word that God uses here. This is that Greek word kainos, which does not have to do with newness over time. It has to do with newness of kind. The old world, this one, the old heavens, the first heavens and earth, this one that we live in, this earth and the stars and the galaxies will have passed away, verse 1 says. And that means in Greek, they're gone. Not covered with a veneer, they're gone, they've passed away, just as Peter described, with a roar, burned up, dissolved, reduced down to those basic elements that God first spoke into existence in the beginning. And here... So it's all been disintegrated, and then a brand new heavens and earth are formed, new in kind, utterly unlike the one that we know and live in now. In the new one, there's no sin, and in the new one, there's no curse, no effects of sin. See where it says that there's no sea in the new earth? That doesn't mean that there won't be a physical ocean or bodies of water. When God made this one, this earth, He made the seas and He made all the fish and all the animals that dwell in the sea back in Genesis. And He declared when He made all that that it was good. There was nothing fundamentally wrong about the ocean or the creatures that live in the ocean. In the new earth, there will still be an ocean. There will still be bodies of water teeming with life that will be good. Here, what Revelation is showing us is that what the sea represents in the book of Revelation symbolically will be removed from the new heavens and the new earth. And what it represents in the book of Revelation is the place from which the beast comes. The sea represents chaos and turmoil and darkness. It represents the place of all spiritual evil and wickedness and and in the new heavens and the new earth that's what will be missing that's what will be distinct that's what will be gone in this picture the stains of sin and ungodliness haven't just been painted over they're gone they're they're incinerated so in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no sin no evil no unrighteousness and no decay which which is the result of sin and the curse of God on sin imagine that I, it, I find it impossible to imagine a whole new universe that cannot decay or become corrupted in any way. It just stays perfectly new all the time. A brand new garden temple where God will forever dwell with His people and nothing will spoil it. Nothing will ever go bad. No sickness, no death, no decay, no pain. No misery, no sin, just perfect wholeness and perfect holiness. Because, see, that's the only worthy venue for the wedding of God to His people. And so in verse 2, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore because the former things have passed away. The things intrinsic to this earth, gone. And we have to understand the imagery here because it's beautiful. God is describing his church, his bride, his chosen redeemed people as a city where he himself will dwell with us forever in close proximity like husband and wife. Notice what it says there in verse 3. This is the key. God himself says with a loud voice from his throne, behold, the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of God, that's what's being pictured here. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So this is the key to understanding the whole vision. Don't miss it. Don't misunderstand it. The whole vision is not describing an eternal dwelling place for the people of God. The vision is describing an eternal dwelling place for God Himself that the people of God are. See? It's not describing a place for the people of God to dwell. It's describing the people of God as the place for God to dwell forever. See? And of course, describing His people in this kind of way as a temple for Him to dwell in, that's nothing new, right? That's not not something unique to the book of Revelation. This isn't the first time the New Testament has spoken this way and described the redeemed people of God, His church, as, as a dwelling place for God, right? Paul talks that way in Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's the same picture, see? Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's not describing a physical building made out of physical building materials. He's using that imagery to describe His people as His dwelling place. In Him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God Himself by the Spirit. Peter says, again to the saints, to Christians, 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, see? That's what what it is already. Not just the betrothed bride awaiting the return of the bridegroom, What the church also is, is the dwelling place of God. Built on the foundation of the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus is the chief cornerstone that holds it all together. And in Him we are being built up into a place where God Himself dwells. And the place where God Himself dwells is, that's what a temple is, right? That's what the original creation itself was supposed to be in the first place. A garden of creation originally in Genesis that was his his dwelling with man, his temple with man. And then the garden temple was spoiled by sin. And so the, 
the dwelling place of God was in this tabernacle, this sort of portable temple that the people carried around in the wilderness. And finally, in Solomon's day, they made an actual physical building out of wood and stones by human hands. Those were the dwelling places of God. Those were the temples of the old covenant. And in the new covenant, see, it's better. The temple, the dwelling place of God becomes defined in a much more beautiful way than just these wooden and and stone buildings made out of earthly things by human hands and ingenuity. In the new covenant, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God is not a tent or or even a, a temple as magnificent as Solomon's was. First and foremost, it's not that in the new covenant because Jesus himself says that he's the temple, right? He's the one who came as the eternal God, took on human flesh, and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And the word dwelt there in John 1.14 is the word tabernacle. Jesus put on a tent. God put on a tent of human skin in order to live among men in this sin-cursed world. All the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. And then, of course, you remember the Gospel of John in chapter 2 where Jesus uses the word temple in reference to his own body. If you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And it was after the resurrection that the disciples all realized he was not talking about the building in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. You're going to tear it down, he says to the Pharisees. God's going to rebuild it in three days. And then after his resurrection and ascension, Paul tells the Christians in the city of Corinth That we, that the church of Jesus Christ, the redeemed people of God who have been made to be new creations in Christ Jesus, that we are in Him the temple of God, right? Do you not know that you are God's temple? Because God's Spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy and you are that temple, Paul says. And then in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he says the same thing. He tells us that our bodies are the dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, which is why we need to abstain from immorality in our lives. You don't want to drag pollution into the temple of God. So, the New Testament portrays the people of God who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, the the, the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Jesus Christ, as this temple where God will dwell. And here in Revelation 21... Both of those images, the image of the bride and the image of the temple, are gloriously combined as the church is portrayed this way. The bride, who is made to be unspeakably beautiful through the descriptions here of this temple city where God will dwell with his people forever. Now in verse 2, John says that the name of this bride, who is portrayed as the temple city dwelling place of God, the name is... New Jerusalem. Same word new, by the way, kainos, right? That he uses in verse 1 for new heavens and new earth. Newness in kind. So see, this is not the same Jerusalem that exists over in the Middle East. And this is not just that same Jerusalem cleaned up and refurbished. Because this word kainos doesn't mean that. It means a qualitatively new kind of Jerusalem. Something far better than the original city of God. 
Now, the old Jerusalem, the the one we're familiar with geographically, is that city in Israel where the Old Testament temple was built by Solomon, and it was the city of the people of God. And he named it Jerusalem. It's an interesting name. It comes from combining two Hebrew words, yara and shalom. You know this word shalom. You've probably heard that word, and we translate that word peace. That's, it's a beautiful word, actually. It comes from a word that means um, wholeness as opposed to brokenness. So if you had a precious vase sitting on the counter and it got knocked off and shattered into a million pieces and God himself put it back together and made it whole without any cracks or fissures, that's what the word shalom means. Picture our relationship to God that's become shattered into a million pieces. And then he makes it whole again. He makes us to be at peace by the blood of the cross with him. So that's what the word shalom means. The word yarah is a little harder to pin down. Originally, it either meant uh, to throw something like, like casting a fishing net out into the water, or it might mean to, to sprinkle water down on something, like to rain water down in a shower. Kind of like the, the heavens casting, maybe, water down onto the earth. That's what the word yara means. So when you combine the two, yara and shalom, you get Yarushalayim in Hebrew, Jerusalem, which means to sprinkle peace, to rain down peace. Because as the place where God dwelt in His temple among His people, the city of Jerusalem was supposed to be that place where God rained down peace on the earth. And brought wholeness to the earth and to the people of the earth. Didn't quite work out that way in the Old Testament. Well, here in Revelation 21, in John's vision of a new heavens and a new earth, we see the bride of Christ, the people of God, the church, portrayed as the new Jerusalem. The new city, the new dwelling place of God, the new and eternal temple of His dwelling, the new place from which everlasting wholeness and perfect peace rains down on the whole new creation. And that wholeness, that um, peace is described in verse 4. God dwelling in and among His people will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No sorrow, no death. No mourning, no crying, no pain. All of those former things, gone, passed away, dead. Not anymore. Now, perfect peace constantly raining down. Wholeness, shalom. All that was broken, all that was fractured has been permanently mended and remade. Made new, kainos new. No more pain, no more of any of those things. Because, verse 5, God makes all things new in the end. New in essence. Completely, qualitatively, permanently, incorruptibly, eternally new. And in verse 6, God tells John that this new heavens, this new earth, this new Jerusalem, this place of perfect eternal peace where God forever dwells with His people and in wholeness and joy and life will be the heritage of everyone who conquers. Jesus uses that phrase, the one who conquers, a bunch of times. Back in the letters that he writes to the seven churches in the beginning of this book. And it means the one who stands firm. 
without compromising. By the grace that God gives, by the strength that God supplies, the one who conquers is the one who runs with endurance all the way to the end and finishes the race and finishes it well. The one who conquers is the one who doesn't get tripped up by sin and and temptation and get choked out and fall by the way. The one who conquers is the one who discerns evil, discerns false teaching in this world, doesn't get lured away by it, stands firm and uncompromising in the truth and in the holiness of God. The one who conquers isn't seduced by Babylon's charms. The one who conquers is the one who stays pure as the bride of Christ by God's grace and the strength that he supplies. And so verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. If we conquer and finish the race, if we don't compromise in this world, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal dwelling and the peace of God and his everlasting blessings and joy, that'll all be our heritage and our eternal inheritance forever. And then notice the warning on the other side of the coin in verse 8. But, contrast, right? As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will not be the peace and the eternal blessing of heaven. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The cowardly are the ones who are too afraid to bear up their crosses and follow Jesus wherever he goes. The ones who weren't willing to count the cost of true discipleship, so they turned away from Jesus. They contented themselves with the treasures of this world instead. The faithless are the ones who, who regardless of what they said with their mouths, wouldn't actually submit their hearts and lives to Jesus in life-transforming living faith. The detestable are the ones whose lives and choices and behaviors are detestable to God. No matter what they say, they make him sick and nauseated. Remember like the church of Laodicea, they were lukewarm spiritually, they were neither hot nor cold, and God wanted to spit them out of his mouth. It was just a spiritual swamp there in Laodicea. And Jesus is saying spiritually that's how segments of the church are, and people who call themselves Christians are. Murderers, not just those who have taken innocent life, but those who have given tacit approval to the destruction of image-bearing life and failed to stand up and stand firm for the sanctity of all human life. The sexually immoral, that's a broad category. It covers every kind of sexual sin of the body and of the mind. Sorcerers are people who participate in occultic rituals and false pagan religions. Idolaters, again, a broad category. It's everyone who gives homage to and pays adoration and devotion to anything more than to God. Liars are those people who, who seek to benefit themselves at the expense of others by misrepresenting the truth instead of trusting God and exuding truthfulness no matter what the cost. 
they're pragmatists and so they betray the truth and therefore they betray God when it benefits themselves. People who live in these ways, people whose lives are are characterized persistently by these sins instead of by the righteousness of Christ, are called earth dwellers in the book of Revelation, the, the ones who refuse to count the cost and follow Jesus with uncompromising faith, their portion will be the second death, which is an everlasting death. But in the great patience and kindness and graciousness of God, he's been waiting all this time to bring about the final death, the second death, the eternal judgment, the end of this whole heavens and earth. Not because he's slow in keeping his promise to make all things new, but because he's patient, right? He wants all men to come to repentance. And he gives us the book of Revelation to tell us that the final judgment is coming. The patience will run out one day. And, and, and he tells us what it'll be like for all of those who refuse to repent and believe on Jesus. And he also tells us what it will be like for those who do repent and believe on Jesus. So there are a lot of really grim warnings about judgment in the book of Revelation, which exists so that we can plead with people to repent and be saved from all of that horrible condemnation. Here, what he's doing is giving us another kind of motivation by showing the glorious and beautiful heritage that awaits everyone who conquers, who who overcomes, and who endures in Jesus Christ. The faithful, conquering, triumphant church of Jesus Christ is his bride, made beautiful in his holiness and righteousness, and she is his dwelling place, his temple, portrayed here in kind of over-the-top pictures, right? Opulent splendor. So remember, this vision of the temple city isn't describing a place for the people of God to dwell. It's describing symbolically the people of God as the place where God will dwell. And in verse 9, the angel shows John this vision of the people of God, the bride of Christ, now not only his betrothed, but his eternal wife in all of her splendor, made perfectly clean and decked out with all of the beauty that God has to give. And all the descriptions that are listed from this point on in the passage are meant to contrast in the, in the sharpest possible terms the glorious bride of Jesus with the terrible harlot of Babylon that we saw several weeks ago. John sees that the bride of Jesus is radiating the very glory of God in verse 11. That's what we ought to be doing in this world. The world ought to see a difference. There ought to be a sharp contrast as we radiate the glory of God. Even as John saw back in chapter 4, the glory of God radiating from the throne of God in heaven. It's like a brilliant, beautiful light shining through these spectacular, precious jewels. The glory of God and the beauty of His holiness emanates from His bride in all of eternity and ought to be already doing that in our lives more and more. Well, I know, I know that it's 
it's hard for sometimes the, the people of God to look at their lives and, and, and see themselves as something that's beautiful to God. A lot of times we look at our lives and we see our sin. And we say, there's no way that I could be beautiful to my king. There's no way that, that the Holy One could delight in my beauty. But see, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you are. For eternity, you will be, because he's going to grant to you to be clothed in those pure white linens of his righteousness and his holiness. He's going to deck you out with everything that is beautiful to him. And he's already at work conforming you to the image of his own glory so that it's starting more and more to shine off of you. And that's what the Christian life ought to be. Verse 12 describes the structure of this temple city that is the bride and the church of Jesus. Again, don't picture a physical object coming down out of the sky that somebody builds a telescope and is looking for. That's not what's being described here. The structure is said to rest on the 12 foundation stones which bear the name of the 12 apostles, meaning exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 2, right? We are the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself, the the chief cornerstone. Everything that's revealed in God's word is our foundation. And we stand on that and we will be unshakable. But like Jesus' picture of the house that's not built on the rock but on the sand, if you build your house on the foundations of worldliness and worldly wisdom, then you will fall. This city is said to have great high walls, which means to any ancient-minded person who lived in a walled city, it's unassailable. Nobody can, nobody can build a ladder that tall. It's impenetrable. And it's surrounded by 12 gates. Each of the gates has one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And what that means is that contained in this city is the whole and complete number of the people of God. The true Israel who are Jewish and Gentile in terms of earthly ethnicity. But the Israel of God in terms of being the true seed of Abraham. So no idolaters, no people who live in impurity, only those who bear the name of God and the name of Jesus as a seal, and none of them will be excluded. Every single living stone from every single nation, from all of history, will be precisely fitted into its place, which is signified by the whole structure being precisely measured verses 15 through 17. Its dimensions are precise in the all-knowing mind of God. It's laid out as a square. Each wall is as tall as it is long. Actually laid out as a cube, right? As long and wide as it is tall. 12,000 stadia would be about 1,500 miles. That's roughly from here to Kansas. Again, it's not an actual box. It's six times higher than the orbit of the International Space Station. It's not an actual box sitting on this planet. But the walls are 144 cubits thick, 200 feet thick. 
right? That's, if it were a physical thing, it would be impossible for the thickness of those walls to bear the weight of their height, right? But that's not what we're talking about because we learned last week not to discount the visionary and symbolic levels of these prophetic images. Jesus also doesn't have a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth. It's a visual, symbolic portrait of the bride of Christ in her perfected glory as the people whose eternal dwelling place is with God because they are the eternal dwelling place of God. The dimensions are given in multiples of 12 and multiples of 1,000 and all throughout Revelation and the prophets in the Old Testament that signifies wholeness and completeness of the people of God. 12 apostles and also the vastness of the number right multiples of a thousand gives a wonderful portrait of the vastness of God's love it's not just a few that he chooses it's not just a few that he redeems it's an immeasurable incalculable number who have been blessed eternally by his grace the measurements by the way also roughly compute to a city that would be around 5,500 miles in its perimeter, which probably not consequently was roughly the size of the known world in the Hellenistic time when John saw this vision, which is God's way of signifying that this temple city represents people from everywhere in the known world, every nation of the known world at the time when this vision was recorded. Verses 19 through 21 describe the foundation stones as being adorned with every kind of precious jewel and precious stone. And the list of those stones is based on the 12 stones that were found on the breastplate of the high priest's garments in the Old Testament temple in Exodus 28 and 39. And the names of the 12 tribes were written on the stones on the priest's breastplate in the Old Testament temple so that when he went into the temple, he was representing all of the tribes and all of the people from everywhere in Israel. Here, it's the names of the apostles that are inscribed on the foundation stones, meaning that the apostles of Jesus, the the foundation of the New Testament church, are the ones who represent the true and ultimate eternal new Jerusalem. Meaning that anyone who stands on the foundation of what God has revealed in His Word, the true gospel, the Word of God that the apostles preached and revealed, those will comprise the eternal temple, the Holy of Holies, where God will dwell for eternity. So again, it's a picture of uncompromising faithfulness to the Word of God, the law of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every gate leading into this city is is said to be like a giant pearl. I mean, again, teaching us how silly it would be to try to interpret this in a physically literal way, right? Those would be awfully big oysters. Number one. Number two, where they they come from if there's literally no ocean? (laughs) Hmm. In Revelation, this is just another way of signifying the preciousness. And the price, remember Jesus spoke of finding the pearl of great price, something that was so rare that you would sell every other possession in the world to have it. And he said, that pearl is me, Jesus. So it's, it's a symbol of the preciousness and the pricelessness of the people of God who make up this city temple of God. 
In verse 22, John sees that there is no physical architectural temple in this city. There's no building where God has to dwell because the city is the dwelling place of God and the city is the church. The church is the bride and the bride is the temple. And in the city temple, in the midst of his bride, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb do dwell. There won't be somewhere you have to go and stand in line. And most of us can only get partway there and nobody can pass between the veil and God's actual presence except the high priest Jesus is the high priest and we are the temple and we have immediate eternal access to his glorious presence for all eternity Uh, Jeremiah prophesied of the coming day when the people shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed No one's going to wonder where the ark is. No one's going to make Indiana Jones movies anymore. The ark won't ever be made again because at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather unto it and unto the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem forever. And that's what's being described here. The bride is the new Jerusalem where all people from every nation are gathered into the presence of their Lord and their God forever. And then finally... Verses 23 to 27 at the end of the chapter here describe how the glory and the holiness of God will absolutely and utterly and completely define every aspect of the bride of Christ for eternity. In Isaiah 60, the nations are said to come flooding into the presence of God, bringing gifts to Him, praising Him, worshiping Him. And that's what's going on here in verses 24 and 26. All the people of the new heavens and the new earth in the new Jerusalem, they're they're people from every nation and they'll spend eternity worshiping and glorifying God. The gates will never be shut. There won't be any night, verse 25 says. There won't be any restrictions on the access of the people of God to the glory of His presence. Verse 27 says that nothing unclean will ever enter in. Only the people of God radiating the glory of God, giving glory to God, reveling in the presence of the glory of God for all eternity will be His bride and the people of His presence. People say, and especially as they're getting nearer to the end of their earthly lives here, what's heaven going to look like? Hard to say what it's actually going to look like with with your eye visually, but this is what it will be like and that matters way more, right? The bride will be glorious because the bride will have been perfectly conformed into the image of God's own perfect glory. We will be holy. We will be pure. A church made up of people from all the nations come to worship and praise our God forever. Whole and complete, incorruptible in every way. And we will stand forever on the gospel foundations of truth revealed by the prophets and the apostles, impervious to corruption, resplendent in glory. So the contrast between the bride of Christ and the the harlot Babylon, which is this world that we live in now, couldn't be more explicit, right? The bride is Jesus' church. Babylon is the ungodliness of the wickedness of the world around us. The church is the pure bride. Babylon is a filthy harlot full of bloodshed, full of death, where the bride is full of healing and full of life. People are told to flee from the harlot and run to the bride. 
Babylon is, is broken by God, shattered into pieces. But the new Jerusalem is peace, shalom, Yerushalayim, whole, complete, and will remain that way forever. Babylon glorifies herself. The bride is radiant with the glory of God. Babylon is a dwelling place for demons and sinners and everything unclean. But the new Jerusalem, the bride, is the dwelling place of the Most High and Holy God. Who do you want to be? Where do you want to dwell? Babylon and the second death? Or as the bride of Christ, as the temple of God, dwelling in his midst forever? There's only two options, right? Who do you want to belong to? Babylon, the harlot, is what this world is. And if we have trouble discerning the difference between the harlot and the true bride of Christ, that's because we have not properly focused on the glory of the bridegroom. If we can't see the contrast. And if our lives don't reflect the great distinction between the harlot and the bride, if we're being friendly with this world... If our thought processes and our beliefs and desires and values and choices and actions are reflecting the the values of this world, it's because we've loved this world. And John says and James says that if we've loved this world, the love of God isn't in us and we've become the enemies of God. The glory of God in Jesus Christ is a far greater beauty and a far greater treasure and heritage than any of the shallow and seductive and, and false beauties of this world. This world is a seductive harlot. And if you're focused on her charms, your heart will go cold to Jesus Christ. So focus on Him. And behold Him daily, daily, hour by hour, When you feel yourself getting cold towards Him and becoming enamored with the things of the world, go back and focus on Him. In God's Word, dwell in your mind, abide in your heart constantly in the unsurpassed glory of Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you into the image of that glory from one level to the next. And as you keep doing that, you conquer and this will be your heritage. If you forsake this world and the things of this world, if you don't store up your treasures here, if you forsake self, if you recognize that your life is not your own, you're the temple of God, you're the bride of Jesus. Remain pure, remain faithful, stand firm, and prepare yourself by His strength, by His grace, as His bride for the wedding and for the eternal glory that is coming and plead with people in this world to turn from Babylon to flee her and to run to Christ and to be clothed in his righteousness forever let's just say amen amen let's pray together and then we'll sing our God and our Father we literally aren't able to comprehend the height and the depth and the fullness of the beauty that you reveal and the glory that you reveal in your word. And so would you draw us back and back and back to the glory of your holiness and the images by which you describe it in your word like the ones here. 
And would you cause us to be overwhelmed with that in such a way that it would continually wash away from us desires for sin and sinful desires and temptations and lusts for the things of this world, that it would keep us fleeing from Babylon and preparing ourselves as the bride of Christ that we are for his return. And so, Father, glorify yourself in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand, please, if you would, all together as God's people, and let's turn to page 16 and sing, We Are God's People, Chosen of the Lord. <laughs> 